We are on Isaiah 42 today. Um, in Isaiah 42, we're beginning what's known as the servant song. Uh, there's this figure now introduced. The language servant has been used before by Isaiah. Isaiah is called the servant of the Lord back, I believe, in chapter 20. Uh, and in the previous chapter, the servant refers to Israel, the uh, the nation of Israel. God calls them my servant. Who is my servant but Israel? Even as he's rebuking them, he still refers to them as servant. But here it appears as if another figure is being introduced, a representative figure. Uh, because some of the attributes of Israel are given to the servant in this chapter. Uh, for instance, uh, in verse 19, who is blind but my servant, or deaf is my messenger whom I send. Is that referring to Israel, or is it referring to this figure in chapter 1? So this is the first servant song, and we're going to look at this, of course, we know, because we have the New Testament, that the this passage refers to Christ. But the first readers, as they're reading this, this figure is going to be more and more revealed. Uh, and so it's... Uh, It's interesting to allow Isaiah to unfold this in his time and look at what's being said. And so let's look at this. I just want to take the first nine verses because it's so rich as it lays the foundation uh, in the servant song, verses 1 through 9 of Isaiah 42. So here's God's word. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail, nor be discouraged, till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastland shall wait for his law. Thus says the Lord, a God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord. That is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, the new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Uh, thus the first nine verses of this servant song. Uh, in the first four, four verses, we have the task that the servant is called to do. Uh, this is what he is going to be coming to do. In the next few verses, verses 5 through 9, is the Lord God speaking directly to this servant. So let's first ask the obvious first question, who is this servant? Um, well, the first, uh, the first thing we need to uh, remember is that servant in the scripture, when God uses that term, is actually a word of high honor, the highest honor. 
Uh, it's the honor that all of us should strive for to be known as the servant of the Lord God. It's a tremendous honor. Moses in Joshua chapter 1 is referred to as the servant of Jehovah. Isaiah himself is referred to as the servant of Jehovah. It's one who comes with the message and the power and the commission of God himself. He doesn't have his own message. message. He doesn't have his own commission. He doesn't have his own task. He's coming to do what God has given him to do. Uh, this is the servant. Now, back in the previous chapter, Isaiah 41, Isaiah says in verse 8, But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. So notice how that same language is used. We have elect or chosen one in verse 1 here, and we have the chosen uh, talked about in verse number uh, 8 of the previous chapter. Um, and so that gives you this who is he talking about? Is he talking about the nation as a whole, Israel as a whole, or is there one figure that he's speaking of? And here, of course, as Christians, we anticipate the answer to this, but let's not jump ahead too fast because we'll miss something very beautiful about who Christ is. Uh, in um, verse number six, he's talking about as a covenant for the people. I will give you as a covenant for the people. God created the human race in such a way that we are of one blood. Uh, we are tied together by covenant. It's unavoidable. Um, the covenants that we live in can't be avoided. There's, you are either a covenant breaker or a covenant keeper. And we will hopefully have an opportunity to talk fully about the richness of the biblical idea of covenant. But there's just one I would like to focus on today. When God created the human race originally, he established Adam as the head of the human race. Uh, the human. Uh, in uh, the, He created the human, male and female, and he made them in his image. And through the fall of the first human, Adam and Eve in paradise, our catechism says, through that fall, all the human race fell with them. And as Paul says in Romans chapter 5, the proof of that is all of us die. Uh, death entered into the world because of Adam's sin. This is how God constituted the human race. We can look at the obvious examples. Uh, we were talking in our prayer time just a moment ago about politics and uh, how it's a mess uh, and uh, the politicians and the decisions they make affect the whole country. Decisions that fathers and mothers make affect their children. Decisions that kings make affect the, the children. Throughout the Old Testament, when, uh, when you follow the Old Testament kings, uh, David and Solomon and Rehoboam, if they were wise and godly, the nation prospered. If they were foolish and evil, the nation suffered. So there were those limited covenant heads. The sins of fathers are never imputed to the children, except for one. Adam's sin is imputed to all of us. So, when you speak of, is it individual or is it collective, the answer is both. Because Christ is so established as our covenant head that Israel is the servant, but Christ is the servant. And in this, going back to the language of Genesis, uh, in Genesis chapter number um, 
in Genesis chapter number three, when God uh, originally pronounces uh, the curse on the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, there's individuals, between your seed and her seed. Seed, of course, is collective. It can mean singular or it can mean plural. It's purposefully ambiguous. And then it says, he shall bruise your head. Who? The collective seed or the individual seed? You see what I'm saying here? Let's jump ahead a little bit for a little bit of clarity on this because Matthew clarifies this. And there's a very confusing verse in the book of Matthew. Uh, in Matthew chapter 2, when, when Herod uh, slaughters the innocents in Bethlehem and Joseph and Mary and Jesus head to Egypt, and then Herod dies, God tells them to go back. So they come around and go back and says, Thus it was fulfilled that which was spoken of by the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Uh, I'm using this passage as an example because it illustrates what I'm saying about the servant. That passage, out of Egypt I've called my son, is in the book of Hosea, and it's absolutely, very definitely, clearly speaking about the nation of Israel. Being redeemed from their misery, being called out of Egypt, being loved. Esau have I loved, Jacob have I hated. Or <laughs> Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Uh, and, and in that passage, he's talking about the Exodus. But Matthew applies it to Jesus. And then Matthew accounts Jesus as following the same path as Israel. Forty days in the wilderness, being tempted of God. This time listening to Moses and quoting, Thus saith the Lord, or the scripture says, and he's quoting these passages out of Moses. All of them were the passages that were used to rebuke Israel, who failed in their temptations in the wilderness. Jesus, as the true son, succeeded where Israel failed. Okay, so follow this along a little bit. Now we have Jesus as the servant. How do we know that this is speaking of the servant? Because Matthew then, in chapter number 12, quotes this passage. He said when... Uh, he, he, Jesus, when he was doing his ministry, huge crowds were starting to follow him. And they were starting to make a hubbub. And there's nothing the ancient Middle East loved more than creating hubbubs. They made a lot of noise. They loved to shout. They loved to yell. They loved to sing loudly. Uh, but Jesus refused to have a hubbub around him. He refused to have that. Uh, and so it says that Jesus forbade them from spreading the word, from causing riots. And Matthew says... And thus it was fulfilled, this passage, in Isaiah, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, and so forth. A bruised reed he will not break. He will not lift up his voice in the streets, and so on. So, on the one hand, Israel is the servant of God. But Israel failed. Israel was not well-pleasing to the Lord. They rejected God. They rebelled against God. What is needed is a new covenant head, a new one who will represent all of his people. And here's what the scripture teaches. Jesus is so closely associated with his people that we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. What happens to the head happens to the people. And what happens to the people happens to the head. This will clarify 
a lot of what Jesus says when he says, for instance, which he also says in Matthew, uh, Matthew 25, in the last day, he says he's going to separate the sheep and the goats. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. They said, when do we do that? When you did it to the least of these, my brethren. In other words, how we treat the believers in Christ, Jesus takes that as how you treat him. This is how closely Jesus is related to his people. Now, properly speaking, the sin belongs to the body, but the head takes that on himself. The righteousness belongs to the head, but he gives that to the body. For this reason, it would be unjust for God to cast us into hell. Because Christ already paid the penalty for our sin. And therefore, in this economy, as God has established the human race, when we are united to Christ by faith, what's his becomes ours, what ours be is becomes his, his crucifixion is our crucifixion. And therefore, we've already been put to death. This is the heart of the Christian faith. If we remove this covenantal understanding, then you have these you have to figure out how can God forgive sin? How can God be just and the justifier of those that believe in Christ? How is it this famous passage if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins? How is it just for God to forgive sin? unless you have the covenantal understanding that Christ is so united to us that he takes on the name servant. He takes on the name son. Israel was called the firstborn son. Um, now there's the eternal sonship of the second person of the Trinity, but that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about this second person of the Trinity taking on the sonship of Israel. When God said to Moses, Israel is my firstborn son, pointed to Christ, the firstborn son. So, Christ is the true Israel. The reason this is important, also, is because of the promises made to Abraham. The promise that was made to Abraham was that he'd be the heir to the whole world, the firstborn son, the heir of everything. When Christ came to fulfill that, as Paul said, seed, one, not seeds, many, when Christ came to fulfill that, all of us who are united to Christ, no matter who we descended from, whether it was Shem, Ham, or Japheth, all of us who are united to Christ are children of Abraham, because Christ is a child of Abraham. So keep that in mind. Everything that is Christ's is ours, and everything that is ours is Christ's. This is the union of Christ and his church. A very close flesh of his flesh, bone of his bone. This is what's signified in the Lord's Supper, according to the Heidelberg Catechism. By the Holy Spirit, we are so united to Christ that all he, although he is in heaven and we are on earth, we are nevertheless flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. So, with that in mind, this anticipates the answer. Is he talking about Israel or is he talking about the Israel? Yes, he is. And here, this nation of Israel is now being, just like the seed in Genesis 3.15, the nation is being whittled down to one, 
one representative, just like David represented all of Israel when he went out to slew, to slew, slay, slay, slew, slay Elijah. Just like Israel went out to slay Elijah, David went out to slay Goliath. I'll get it right eventually. So Christ is our champion, our covenant head, flesh of our flesh, bone of our bone. How beautiful is that? Anyway, we get, just a little side note, because I've had this discussion this week, we get so caught up in taking Ephesians 5 and making sure we're battling feminism with it that we miss Christ and the whole thing. And thus we miss everything else. It's about flesh of his flesh, bone of his bone. Don't forget that. Okay. So let's look then at these words that he's saying. My elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. And of course this we see actually fulfilled when Jesus is baptized. John pours the water on him and the spirit descends as a dove. And what does the voice from heaven say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, Jesus didn't come for that himself. He was already the beloved son. He came so that we might know. And so when you are, as you go down, we talk about the bruised reed, the smoking flax, the prisoner, the, uh, those who sit in darkness, the blind, the lame, the weak, the deaf. When we have those moments where we're just crushed under the weight of this world and this life, remember that that word spoken to Jesus at his baptism is spoken to us. It said it for our sake, because everything that is Jesus is ours, and everything that is ours is Christ's. So you are whether you're male or female, bond or free, the beloved son in whom God is well pleased. Because we're united to Christ. This is, as the doctrine of the Spirit is more evolved, uh, more revealed to us, we understand more and more what's happening with the doctrine of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit poured out on the servant here. Uh, as the New Testament reveals, that Holy Spirit is not given by measure to Jesus. He has it in its fullness. And then that Spirit is poured out. It's the inheritance that's poured out on the church. When Jesus ascends into heaven and receives the promise of the Father, the Spirit in the fullness, the heathen for his inheritance, and he pours that inheritance out on his church and unites them all to himself. Now, the conquering king. Isaiah has spoken of the conquering king. We've spoken of that before. This, uh, this spirit being poured out would have been understood by the contemporaries of Isaiah as referring to the anointing of the king. And it's true, that was. That was his anointing as, as our king. When he was baptized by John and the Spirit was poured out, that was his anointing as our prophet, priest, and king. But it's not a king like the kings of the earth. It's not a king of uh, shouting and coercion and, and pomp and circumstance and, and uh, noise and yelling and all the stuff that's involved. He doesn't pick up the sword and crush his enemies. It isn't a kingdom based on who's strong and who's powerful and who's mighty. Think about it this way. 
How does a king march through a land with his armies without crushing the reeds? And yet this king doesn't even crush the bruised reeds. Now, a bruised reed, if you look at uh, the cattails in the swamp or the papyrus reeds along the rivers, you see those reeds there. What would make them bend over and break or be bruised and begin to die? You could have a strong wind. Uh, you could have an animal trampling through. You could have a man tramping through. In other words, the reed itself is helpless against a force that's too great for it and therefore is broken and crushed. Jesus has this power and the strength. All power is given to him in heaven and earth, but he doesn't crush the reed. And those reeds that are crushed, he binds up, he heals, he touches. The smoking flax, this is a... a, the wick that it's referring to the wick that goes into the lamp. You got a lamp of oil and the wick sticks into it uh, when it gets down to the bottom and it's just almost out and it's almost gone out. He doesn't snuff it out. He fans it. He fans it. Brings forth light. He delights in us when we are at our weakness, weakest. Now, all earthly kings. All earthly kings, all earthly politicians, all governors, all presidents, all congressmen, everything. In order to become a leader of men on this earth, you have to figure out how to use power. The only way to use power and money is through crushing some people and uplifting other people. You have to have this party and be against that party. And because there's a fall in the world, because there's sin in the world, we seek to dominate one another. And the only way to dominate one another is with the sword. Christ has come to redeem us from that dominion, dominating one another, and restore us as we were created to have dominion over the beasts of the field and the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air, but to live in harmony and peace with one another. This is why the description of the kingdom of God in scripture is every man is sitting under his own vine and under his own fig tree. He's not picking up his sword and going after his neighbor's wife and going after his neighbor's vineyard. He's content being where God has placed him. It's living in this perfect harmony. This is why I fight so hard against the idea that Adam had dominion over Eve before the fall. Because dominion was foreign to the creation of men and women. It was a mutual harmony of one flesh. A beautiful picture of Christ and his church. This harmony of one flesh. So that being said, Christ has come to restore that in us. And so Christ's weapons are not swords and alliances and uh, arguments and uh, fighting and belittling and shaming and cutting people down and all the stuff that's involved in the kingdoms of this earth. You will not see the kingdom of Christ with people burning at the stakes and people on crosses. That's not the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of Christ is growing and growing and growing through the proclamation of the gospel. Whenever the church takes up the sword... Whenever the church seeks to be served rather than serve, whenever the church 
picks up political power to try to advance the kingdom. The kingdom they are advancing is not the kingdom of Christ. Because the kingdom of Christ is defined here. A bruised reed he will not break, the smoking flax he will not quench. It's when we are at, when Christ came into the world, Mary sang, the rich he has sent away empty, the hungry he has fed. The, uh, the, the full are driven away. The strong and the powerful, those that oppress the weak of the earth, they're sent outside in the outer darkness. They're out. Only if we humble ourselves before Christ, only if we acknowledge we're the bruised reed and the smoking flax, when we quit trying to pretend that we have it all together. And what better way to do that than when God brings circumstances in our lives that there's nothing we can do about. Where there's things that are happening to us that we're powerless to prevent and powerless to stop, and we cry out, I am a bruised reed. My flame is about to go out. My fire is about to go out. What this world needs is just is justice. How do you bring forth justice without raising your voice in the streets? The key is, his spirit has been poured out. He reigns by his word and his spirit. All right, well, I'm going to catch up here with my notes. So here, when Christ is coming to establish justice on the earth, um, when he brings this justice, it's a justice of his Spirit, this new law and order that's actually perfect justice, perfect righteousness. We will never see it any other way. It's we see glimpses of justice and glimpses of righteousness so that we understand. But you can't find a situation where justice was perfectly served. The only way that justice is perfectly served is by Christ himself when he comes and brings justice to the nations, when everything is in harmony exactly the way that it's supposed to be. And in the simplicity of God, God's justice and God's love and God's mercy are not three different things. It's one thing seen from different angles. Mercy and love and justice kiss each other, according to the psalm. On the cross, it all comes together. So this is the justice coming. And then there's a process in verse number four. It's not an immediate thing. It's a process. And the promise is he's never going to get tired. He's never going to get discouraged. He's never going to get angry. He's not going to get on Twitter and start ranting because he doesn't know what else to do. He's going to have it completely under control. Everything is going to go according to plan. Because he's the elect one, the chosen one of God from before the foundation of the earth. Just as Israel in the previous chapter was called the chosen one, and now that language is used in the church, chosen of God and beloved, it's uniting us with Christ. Uniting us with the ancient church, all who believed the promise before Christ, after Christ. You believe the promise were chosen from before the foundation of the world. That means that God set his love on us from before the foundation of the world. I keep stressing this because I have met so many people who have been in churches their whole life 
and have never once heard that God loved them. The only thing they've ever heard is that God barely tolerates you. If you step out of line, he's going to crush you. So you better you better shape up. And so all the sermons are geared towards you better shape up. Why did God uh, send his son to die? He sent his son to die because he was so disgusted with the human race that he poured all of his anger and wrath on the son. That's a misunderstanding. For God so loved the world, he sent his son, and first we got to talk about the Trinity to even begin that, to say that God sent his son and to say that God uh, came himself and took our flesh is saying the same thing, because the son is God. The son took this voluntarily upon himself, this union with his people, this union with his people, and he put to death all of that that causes us shame and misery and grief. And the catechism says he went to the cross so that we might know that he took the curse that lay upon us. We might know that so that we might be reconciled with God. In other words, he sent a son, his son took our sins on himself to provide a safe space for us to come to the Father. Even though we're bruised reeds, even though we're smoking flax, even though we're weak, we're crushed, we're without strength, we know that God hears us because he took everything upon himself on the cross. If God, while we were enemies with God, reconciled us by the death of his son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, will he not give us all things? Okay, so back to verse 4, I keep getting. It's universal. The coastlands, that is the farthest reaches of the earth, the coastlands was the farthest point away in the imagination of, of Israel. It's everything in the earth. And this justice throughout the earth is going to spread through the proclamation of the gospel. It's going to be gradual. It's going to go until it fills the whole earth. Of course, there's more that's going to be revealed. This is a glimpse of this snapshot. But once again, back to what I said before this lesson when we were doing prayer time. We're talking about a new heavens and a new earth with justice. This is not an ethereal floating around on a cloud thing. This is a new heavens and a new earth recreated with perfect justice where our bodies, us, body and soul, will be walking with Christ in this new heavens and the new earth. And it's going to take place because the servant is being upheld by the power of God. We'll never get tired. We'll never get discouraged. We'll never get angry. Doesn't get, oh, you again? <sighs> How many of you have felt like that? I can't ask God about this again. I keep asking God for the same thing over and over again, and I keep, keep committing the same sin. But you know, God delights when you say, God, I am too weak to do any of this. I'm too blind, I'm too foolish, I'm too sinful, I'm too weak, I'm a, I'm a smoking flax. And then remember the promise. Christ went to the cross, the servant in whom I delight. That's us. Okay, as per usual, I did not get to verse 5 through 9, uh, and so I will do that next week. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, what a tremendous joy it is to learn about 
you and how you took our flesh upon yourself, Lord Jesus, and so united us to you that we are flesh of your flesh and bone of your bone. We are your bride. We are the sheep of your pasture. We are your people. We are the branches and you are the vine. And so fill us with your life. Pour your spirit out on us and cause us to be like you, not shouting in the streets, not angry, not discouraged, not crushing those underfoot who have been broken and wounded by life, but binding them up, healing them, touching them, walking among the wounded as you did so that your life might shine through us. We ask these things in Jesus' name.